um, who's Jesus? Don't, don't raise your hand yet, but I want, I want us to ponder that question tonight. We talked last week about following Jesus and how important it is for persons to understand that um, what Jesus asks us to do more than uh, believe a certain list of things or think a particular way, what Jesus asks us is to follow. And every one of the disciples, he says, follow me. And a couple of times in Matthew, Matthew says, and immediately they followed. Um, I think that's the question I really want us to, to play with tonight. Uh, not, not, is, is the next question to play with then is, is um, uh, uh, who is Jesus? Who is it we're following? What is it he's proclaiming? Why do you follow him? What, what is there about his teaching, his life, his preaching, his, his prophetic work that engages you and pulls, pulls you in? Um, these are, in fact, some of the questions that will come up in the, in the text tonight. Um, for example, uh, uh, and let's, maybe this might be a little bit risky, but let's do it anyway. Raise your hand if you consider Jesus was a teacher. Uh, raise your hand if you think teaching was part of what he did. Uh, okay, what about uh, if Jesus was a prophet? Raise your hand. Not as many. That Well, yeah, still not as many, but a few, uh, quite a few. Uh, what, if, what do you think about the idea that he was a priest? Not as many. The book of Hebrews, I think it's Hebrews, says that he was our great high priest. An interesting term. Um, where's Ed? Ed, you know the Bible really well. Where's, where's Ed? Doesn't it say that in Hebrews? Isn't that where it says that he's our great high priest? I think that's what I'm remembering. That's in, that's in the book of Hebrews. So, um, you know, that's a, that's a biblical thing about Jesus. But our only about half a dozen hands went up on that one. How many of you think of him as king? Um, again, not as many, but a phrase that's used for him. What about son of God? That one might be a harder one to raise your hand on. Uh, some, most of you did. Fascinating. Um, here's, a, here's a quote that I love from Fred Craddock. I, you might, I quoted Fred on Sunday. I quote him all the time. He, he died a couple of years ago. A uh, brilliant, brilliant preacher. Was named by Time Magazine maybe 20 years ago. Now is one of the top 10 preachers in America. Um, just, just that level of skill in the pulpit and, and, and brilliance as a scholar. Uh, he lived in Georgia when I was there. And he was about this tall and probably weighed 250 pounds and, and you know, was as, was as wide as he was tall and talked in a really high-pitched voice and um, was, just was a great, great, awesome preacher. Rebecca and Gary, did you guys ever run into Fred Craddock and your disciples time? Uh, maybe it was later in life they got a little chubbier. Fred said, Jesus lived from crib to cross, but we tell the story from cross to crib. Now think about that for a minute. He lived from crib to cross, but we tell the story from cross to crib. Now that, that does not mean that we go chronologically backwards. But we tell his entire story in light of the cross. It's the cross that defines for us the understanding of Jesus' story. And, and Dr. Craddock would surely go on and say, of course, the resurrection is part of that, etc. But with the cross as the focal point, that then becomes how we, we determine the story, which then puts him in a different light, at least as we peop many people of faith think, a different light than, say, a Buddha or a Gandhi or some other great teachers, Lao Tzu, uh, some other great teachers, prophets, priests, kings, and leaders and such throughout history. Um, now, there are others uh, that, that, don't, that don't do that necessarily, uh, others outside of Christian faith, and even some, frankly, within Christian faith who also think that Jesus was a great teacher, and that's, that's the primary definition of, of who he was, and there's not much more to say than, than that. Um, Jesus is honored in Islam. He's considered uh, an important voice and part of, of, um, of, of the um, 
uh, their understanding of, of great prophets and, and teachers. Jesus is recognized in other cultures and religions uh, as someone who spoke truth, etc., but not necessarily in the way that we see him. So really the, the, question, the question is, who is this guy? Who is Jesus? Who is he to you? Who is he to the church? Who is he to the world? What, what difference does he make in your life or, or in mine, in our church, in our congregation, in the way we live and the, and the way we act? Um, I, I didn't say this specifically on Sunday. Uh, I've got, I usually, I, my, it's a good problem to have. I usually have about an hour's worth of material that I've got to cut down to 20 minutes. And even then it bleeds into 23 sometimes. Um, one of the things that got cut out was a little bit of a commentary um, on Luke's gospel having political Im implications. I preached on Luke last week. I'm preaching on Luke again this week too. Um, that Luke's gospel has political implications. Even in the story that G Luke tells of Jesus' birth. Do you remember this? How does he begin it? He tells us who's the, who is in charge who the Caesar is, who's king. He uses political figures to frame the story, and then he uses, in the voices of the angels, uh, in the words of the angels, rather, political terms like kurios and soter. Anybody know what those words mean in Greek? Lord and Savior. When Caesar would come marching into town or the Roman army would come marching into town and take over, they're carrying banners. And on those banners, it says Caesar in Greek and in Latin. Those are the two main languages, sort of like French and English today. Um, uh, they come marching into town in Greek and Latin. It says Caesar is Curios, Caesar is Soter. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Savior. Caesar brings peace, peace on earth. Those in Jesus' day would have been heard as political terms. I mean, and it's, fasc it's fascinating to, to consider that. Now, does that mean that, that Glenn should stand up on a Sunday morning and say, vote for this guy and not, not for her, or vote for her and not for him, or et cetera? Uh, that's when we start to get dangerous kind of territory because you want to be real careful. Jesus was not a Democrat. He was not a Republican. Um, uh, he, looks, he looks like one of the others, sometimes more than at other times, but we got to be real careful about that. Is there teaching within the Bible that has political implications? Um, absolutely. And if you've got a question about that uh, later, we can, we can talk about that. Um, but I just want you to see that, that, that that's, part of the, that's part of this whole milieu of who Jesus is. Who is he? Is he teacher, preacher, prophet? Is he politician? Is he, is he what? Um, what exactly is he? And that's part of what's being struggled on, struggled with in, um, in Matthew's gospel. All right, let's put the first uh, slide up there, Stuart from our, our reading. Um, the status of Jesus is not easily recognized. That's basically what I was just saying in a lot shorter uh, a sentence and much, much clearer. The status of Jesus is not easily recognized. And some of that too comes from uh, what we learn as children and what we understand as children. I was in a conversation, this was when, we, when Julie and I lived in Atlanta. Uh, we were in a small group there of the church, sort of like a, 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 friend's, a friend's circle here, friendship circle here. And there were eight couples, including Julie and me. And one of the couples in our group was uh, Matt and Karen Collins. Matt has a PhD in New Testament from Vanderbilt. He's an extremely smart guy. And we're sitting around, we're having a conversation. Oh, one of the couples, by the way, uh, was a, a Jewish Christian couple. He was Jewish and, and she, was, she was Christian. Um, he was in church all the time. I told him, I'm going to call your rabbi and tell him. You come to church so much. Uh, um, we got into conversation and the question was, why did Jesus die? And I started talking about this theological thing about the intent of, of the cross and how all of us uh, and our sin were what caused it. And, and Matt Collins just sitting there is going, what school did you go to? Jesus, Jesus died because politi Roman politicians in cahoots with the religious leaders killed him. And 
And of course I knew that answer, but I was, I was saying what I'd been taught since I was in the third grade, that, uh, that Jesus died for our sins. Now you can find that in the Bible and that is part of the conversation, but to name that as the only one is to really miss so much of what's going on um, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, and in John too, frankly. So um, let's look at our, our first text here, Ele Matthew 11. Uh, verses 2 through uh, 6, I want to read. We hinted at this last week, or we ended with this last week. I'll pick up here for this week. When John, that's John the Baptist, heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Um, it's kind of a harsh response from Jesus. I mean, it's a little bit like saying, What the heck are you talking about? What, don't you know? But put yourself in John the Baptist's shoes. Uh, you, you probably know, um, if you're John the Baptist, you're going to die. You, you've been speaking out against the king, by the way. The king is the who? And he is a what? He's a politician, okay? John the Baptist is a political prisoner. He's been put in, he's put in prison by the Roman um, sort of puppet. Herod, this, this Herod was more of a puppet than Herod the Great at the time that Jesus was born. Uh, he's, he's there. In fact, this Herod was just a vicious, mean, nasty, ugly, awful, horrible um, uh, uh, leader. Uh, uh, that's God calling to say, turn the phone off. Um, here, here he is. Here he is in prison, put there by a politician. He knows he's going to die, and so he's wondering, is, are you really the one? Is everything I've been doing worth it? Is this really, a, is this, is it you? And Jesus comes at him pr pretty hard. And maybe it's because Jesus hasn't gotten to the realization yet about what's going to happen to him. But I think it's also Jesus's frustration beginning to show up, and it'll show up a little bit more as we get into the, some other text tonight, with the idea that people would still be questioning, would still be wondering, would still not quite be clear about who he was or what's, what's going on. But in John the Baptist's shoes, it's easy to feel that way, isn't it? Um, I, 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 we had a prayer on Sunday night at, at the 5.30 service from uh, one of our young people. I think she's a middle schooler. Um, uh, Clara, I think was her name. She prayed. She gave the pastoral prayer. It was a beautiful prayer. In the middle of her prayer, she said something, and I'm paraphrasing, God, I want to believe in you, but there are so many people right now who are hungry. That makes it hard. I, I, I loved that one of our young people had the sort of guts to say that in front of the, the, the entire congregation for, gathered for the 5.30 service. It was a crowd not, about the same size as this, frankly. It wasn't that big, but still she stood up and said that. that that's where John the Baptist is coming from. He's coming from this standpoint of, of my life's about to fall apart. I'm most likely going to be killed. Has everything I've been doing worth it? Is it there? So as we read this, it, we, it, the, some of these folks who will be questioning Jesus are going to look pretty bad, put ourselves in their place, and it's not hard to, um, uh, to, to think that way. All right. Uh, let's go to 11, 16, and 17 now. <clears throat> Six, 11, uh, uh, I'm sorry, 11, chapters, chapter 11, verses 16 and 17. But to what will I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We wailed, and you, and you did not mourn. Uh, put the next slide up from, from Hauerwas. Uh, um, 
To be a follower of Christ is to learn to dance when children play the flute. And again, notice, notice what Hauerwash is picking up on here. He's picking up on that theme of follower, of being one who follows with Jesus. And Jesus is, critis- is criticizing those in his society and his culture and his, and his, and his community for not knowing when to, when to celebrate, for not knowing when to mourn, for being so caught up in, in, this is stuff I preached on on Sunday, in their own ego, pride, and control that they fail to see the little kid who's right in front of them uh, uh, performing a sweet dance. At one of those 5.30 services we held back in the summer, back in, I think it was the one we had in June. The little band was up here playing. They're playing something kind of fun. Had a little bit of a beat. And about a four or five-year-old, as, we were, as I was giving the opening whatever, uh, while the music was playing behind me, he was just up here just dancing around, having a great time. His dad was over to the side doing, doing the dad, do I get him? Am I, I, he was looking embarrassed. And, I find, and finally we all just stopped and watched the kid dance for a while. You know, that's kind of what it is, right? If somebody's dancing in front of you, well, then stop for a moment and, and, and dance with them. If you don't want to dance with them, celebrate with them or clap for them. I have a friend who's a really good Christian contemporary uh, uh, artist. He writes songs. He, he leads church. He's a contemporary musician in a church in California. He said to me, well, this is 25 years ago when he and I were working in the same church. He said, anytime you walk by a street musician, put a dollar at least in because that guy or that gal is out there performing for you and, and you ought to just drop a dollar in. So every time I see one, I always, in fact, the last time I saw one, all I had was a 20. But I could, I could hear Paul Svensson say, put it in there, Miles. So I, 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 dropped, it, I dropped the 20 in for the guy. And actually, it was the guy, where's Julie? Hey, Julie made it. It was the guy in Kansas City that was playing the piano that one night. And, and it, was, it was, he actually has a, a website. He's playing on the street, has a, 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 a piano and, and a sign out that said, um, random black guy does music or something like that. Um, it was, and he was really good, and he gathered a little crowd. That's kind of what Jesus is talking about here. Followers of Jesus are the kind of people who, uh, when there's joy in the room, they celebrate. When there's sadness, they know how to be sad with, with the other. And if, we, if we're following him, that's, that's, going to, that's the kind of life we're going to want to lead, lead to. All right. And now, verses 20 through 24. Then he began to reproach the cities. So he's taking on everybody. Most of his deeds had power, had been, uh, uh, power had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you. Uh, uh, for if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, on this day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, which, by the way, that's kind of a strange reference. He's yelling at Capernaum for not being more faithful when just a couple of chapters before, we go back to chapter 9 and read it, Capernaum was kind of uh, receptive to Jesus. That's a, that's a funky little thing there. Uh, um, for if the deeds of power had been done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, by the way, that's a real insult. Do you hear what he just said? If I'd gone to Sodom and preached and done what I did for you, they'd still be around. I mean, that, that's, that's like... I, it's like the, he's really cutting them down. It's a real serious insult. But I tell you that on the day of judgment will be more tolerant for the land of Sodom than, than for you. Essentially what, what he's saying here in, in, this, in, in this text is <clears throat> the, when the gospel comes to you directly and it's in front of you and it's this great, wonderful, amazing news and you turn your back on it, it's such a tragedy. He's using hyperbolic language. Hades, Hades in, in Jesus' day represented what? Does anybody know? Not really hell, not exactly. The place of the dead, 
It was a sad, mournful place. It was a place where people were shadows. There were a variety of views of Hades over, over the years. But to, when, this, when that word got translated, I think in the King James, anybody have a King James version? Maybe King James versions of the Bible out there? Anybody got one that you probably don't? Yeah, boy, this is a liberal church, I can tell you. Uh, um, I think the King James says hell. I can't remember. We can look that up, we can look that up later. The, the basic idea is if you got this wonderful uh, 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 good news in front of you, it's, it's, it's a tragedy not to celebrate it. It's a tragedy not to enjoy it. Sometimes in the church, and I've, I've been in the church my whole life, sometimes in the church we get so caught up in stuff, and there's going to be some more stuff come up in the text, that we forget how great it is to be in the church. Um, um, I, I can't tell you who I had breakfast with today, but his name's Buck Byrne. Uh, um, and, and Buck said to me today at breakfast, he said, you know, it's the people in the church, it's the community of faith that's formed there that I love the most. Some more, I'm, I think I'm pretty close, Buck, with that quote. That's, that's exactly it. And to not be able to see that first and recognize in this community there are people who love me and care for me even when I'm at my worst or even when I'm um, sick and, and in, the, in, in the hospital, people will love me. Burke Cram told a wonderful story at Bill Milkey's funeral service about his small group of men, this small group of, church, of men in this church, a couple of whom I think are here tonight, who, who when Bert was sick and needed somebody to watch him 24 hours a day in the hospital to make sure things were going okay, he had his small group of guys. One of them every day took a shift along with his wife, along with the hospital folks. That's, that's like, holy cow, we should put that on the front page of the website. We should celebrate that. Is, is there, wait, where's Pam? I thought I saw Pam Jamison out there too. I started to make a comment about the floors might need to be cleaned. Um, they look great, Pam. Um, but, but, you know, sometimes we get so caught up on, you know, I found a fly in the, in the sink in the bathroom and it just needs, and, and we focus on that fly when it's like, yeah, the fly is there because somebody killed the fly for you. Isn't that great? Um, that's essentially what Jesus, what Jesus is getting, getting at here. All right. Uh, let's go to uh, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And this kind of fits what I'm talking about. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. They began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Now notice it's on the Sabbath. Are you supposed to go out in the grain fields and pluck? Uh, no, you're not supposed to do that. Okay? That's a, a, strict, a strict understanding of that law. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, I'm going to keep reading. Have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, etc. So again, here, here it is. Jesus and his disciples are hungry. They've done all these amazing things for the last few months or however long it's been, a year, whatever, it's, however long it's been. Um, by the way, Fred Craddock, who I quoted earlier, he thinks the timeline for Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of John is 10 years. Um, that's for, if we pick John for next year's study, we'll talk more about that. But for however long it's been, it's been a long time. And essentially these Pharisees come along and they're strict interpreters of the law and how could you possibly be doing this? This is so wrong. You're terrible for doing this. It reminds me of a time when I was in San Diego and we were building the youth group up. We, I started with five kids. We built it up to 50. We were working our way towards 75. We're having big crowds at Sunday night uh, youth programming. Some of the kids said, hey, we hear that Paul Svensson, that's the guy I was talking about, the music guy, he plays on Sunday morning. Can we come to church? I'm like, can you come to church? I guess you can. No. Yes, come to church. Well, three of these kids came. They'd never been in church their whole life. They came walking in. They got those super uber baggy pants. This is early 90s when no one was doing that back then. You know, their underwear is sticking out at the top. They're wearing base, two of them wearing baseball hats backwards. Another one's wearing a baseball hat. And do you know what I heard after church? What do you think I heard? Somebody say. 
those kids were not dressed right for church. And they need to take their hats off. And if they're going to come back, and, and maybe I was young and, and not very smart, but I kind of argued with those folks really loudly and really clearly and said, you know what? It was Ted, Louie, and oh, geez, I can't remember. Julie, you remember the other ones? It was Ted and Louie and, and, and their other friend. Uh, Ted and Louie and their friend had never been to church in their life. They sat on the front row. That was a sign they'd never been to church before. <laughs> And they sang the songs. And uh, I was working for Dick Wing. Dick Wing was the senior minister. I was the associate minister. They heard a great sermon. They had questions for me afterwards about the sermon, some things that he said. They, they've never confessed faith in Jesus. They've never been involved in a church ever in their lives. And we were talking about their hats. I mean, I was real tempted to wear a hat the next Sunday. <laughs> you know, put it on backwards and, and, just, and just, just, I didn't, of, of course. That's what the Pharisees are doing here. And Jesus uses an example from the story of David. When David was running for, for his own safety, he had a band of men that were with him. They come, on, they come up to a priest. Some, they're hungry. There's some bread, the holy presence bread. And I won't explain all that, but it's, a, it's an interesting thing. You're not supposed to eat it unless you've done certain things and all this. And David's like, my guys are hungry. Can we have some bread? And they eat the bread. And, and Jesus is using a story from the Bible to prove that you're missing the point. Now, does that mean the Sabbath laws are, 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 are terrible and should just be ignored? No, I think the Sabbath matters. Um, Julie and I took yesterday off. I, I told everybody we we're doing our taxes. Um, you know, so yesterday they didn't feel like much of a day off, but most of the time we take that day off. We try to stay off of email. We try to stay away from, from uh, work stuff, work-related stuff, and just focus on each other or focus on our dogs or, or go for a long walk or go to a movie or go out to a nice dinner or whatever it is. It's important that we build in those Sabbath moments. Uh, I, have, I have a preacher friend who hasn't taken a day off in about eight years, and I'm so worried that he's just going to implode because he's just, he's just constantly, constantly, and his church is going great, and there's lots of good stuff, but holy cow. But Jesus, that, so the Sabbath matters, and, and taking a strict instruction and understanding of it, don't go out to eat on a Sunday afternoon. I, wouldn't, I break that rule every Sunday. You know, those kinds of strict laws that we used to have um, are, aren't the point. The point is finding a place where you can make some time, carve some time out for yourself. All right, uh, I think we're at slide four. We cannot fight Satan while at the same time employing Satan's understanding of the way things are. I want you to look at um, chapter 13. Keep that, Stuart, and keep that one up there for me if you would. Just leave it up there showing. Um, look at chapter 13 now, verses 1 through 9. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Such great crowds gathered. Uh, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and he sowed some seeds fell on the path, and birds came up and ate them, etc., etc., etc. It's the parable of the sower. Do you know this sower? Some, some seeds planted, some seeds got eaten by birds, some seeds didn't really take. Other seeds um, took and planted and went, went great. And basically what the parable is saying, essentially, is what you're reading, is when it comes to spreading this good news, just spread it everywhere. And don't be so caught up in where it shouldn't go or where would, it be, where it would go best. Um, Will Willimon, who I quote a lot too, I quoted him on Sunday. Uh, Willimon says, when it comes to evangelism, or the, the, uh, the non-church word is marketing, more or less means the same thing. When you're marketing the church, when you're evangelizing for the church, when you're inviting people to be involved in your church, he said, try everything because nothing works. So you just try everything and you see what, you see what happens. Um, if we get too caught up in, 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 um, in 
in the specific techniques or arguments about whether we should do that or this or that, we, we kind of miss the point. What Jesus wants us to understand is it's wherever we go. And so this kind of this happens serendipitously. Here's a fact for you. I put this in my email all the time, but for some of you, it, it'll be new. Most members of the church came into that church by way of the internet, by email, by a television a commercial, a radio spot, a postcard, a letter, a note, or an invitation from a friend. An invitation from a friend. 80% of the people who show up in a church came, 80%, that means 20% came for some other reason, but 80% came because of an invitation from a friend. Now, part of their thinking all that is you still go ahead and do um, a postcard and a commercial on the radio and something on, on the internet. You do this and that so that when, when um, um, oh, well, where's Buck? I'll pick on Buck again. When Buck invites his friend and says, hey, you know what? Oh, we got some great stuff happening in our church this fall. We'd love for you to join us for worship some Sunday. If that friend thinks, wow, I why is it I've heard about that church? Well, maybe they got a postcard. They didn't hardly pay attention to it, but it came across their desk. Maybe they saw something on television. Maybe they saw something on the internet that popped up in a Google ad. Um, my church in Kansas City did that for Christmas Eve one year. We saw a spike in attendance by about 5% by just putting in the words country club and Christmas Eve. Anytime anybody searched in the Kansas City area for those two things, an ad for, for the church popped up on the side. Um, it wasn't very expensive. It was fairly cheap. So you do all that kind of stuff, but really the key folks, and this is, what, this is really what Jesus is getting at here is us. It's, it's us. And, and I'm paid to do this, and my heart pounds when I invite somebody to church, and I get a little sweaty, and it's, it's hard for me. Um, so I imagine it's even harder for you all. But that's really kind of Jesus' point is, is if the child's playing the flute, like we heard earlier, dance. If there's somebody mourning, be in mourning with them. If you've got something going, good, great going on at your church, don't sit back and hope somebody shows up. Get out there and, and let people know about it in whatever way is appropriate for you. Um, I'll get back to that. I'm going to get to the Satan part here in, in just, just a moment. Okay, Matthew 13, 18 through 23. Here then the parable of the sower, and he explains it. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in the heart. Now is where we're getting to the, the devil. This is what was sown on the path. For what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, and etc. cetera. What, what, how, what Matthew is saying is what Hauerwas has summarized for us here. We cannot fight Satan while at the same time employing Satan's understanding of the way things are. I heard, I heard <clears throat> uh, John McCain say real clearly that he was opposed to us using torture. United States of America, us. And he said that as one who'd been tortured. Now, whether you agree with that or, or, or not, it's not, and it's not an exact uh, parallel to this, but it kind of is in the same vein, the same idea that if we lower ourselves to that same level, then who's won? Who's, who's, won, that, who's won that battle? What Jesus wants us to understand is uh, uh, lowering our standards so to where we're doing, willing to do anything to get folks in. I had a friend, for example, who had a uh, member of his staff whose job was church growth. He's an ordained pastor, fine person, educated, I think, think even had a doctorate. Very, very fine person. Um, the senior minister, my friend, went to him and said, um, how much money do we have left for, for promotions for Christmas Eve? Because I'd really like us to do some promotions. This is like in September. And he said, oh, we've, we've spent it all. We've spent it all. Yeah, we spent all. We, we bought some ads at the theaters downtown. 
well, this pastor had six months before specifically met with the committee. The committee had said, no, we're not going to spend that money on the, on the advertisements in the theater. We want to spend it in different ways. But this person had, had, the staff member had gone around the senior minister, had gone around his council and gone ahead and done, and done this, hoping no one would find out or would ask any questions. Um, go ahead and been cheating and lying and stealing, even if the end is good. He didn't steal, but he cheated and lied. Is that, is that appropriate? Absolutely not. And that's kind of the teaching of Jesus here is if we allow the, uh, what's, what's the phrase you used in the text, the evil one, um, to, to influence the way we act and, and function and think, even if we're, we're still, uh, in other words, we let the means, ignore whatever the means are, as long as the end is good, uh, we've caught up in the, in the ways of the evil one. All right, let's, um, let's go to 13, 36 to 43. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry, 31 to 33. He put before them another parable. This is 13 verses 31 to 33. Another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is, the, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. It's one of my favorite parables. And here's, here's what's going on there. Um, so a mustard seed is really teeny, teeny, tiny, right? Farmers, Julie, Julie tiny, Julie doesn't know. Um, she rode horses on the farm. They crushed the mustard seeds. Um, uh, teeny, teeny, tiny little thing and grows up into a bush, sometimes six feet, seven feet, eight feet high. Bird can make their nests in it, etc. It's a beautiful image of what the kingdom of heaven is, of, of what, ha- what happens. It's the tiniest, smallest little act. I said this on Sunday. One person behaving like a Jesus person, uh, like, uh, like a follower of Jesus, can change their family, their office, maybe even their entire church or their community. That's the whole idea of this parable. One tiny little spark creates this, one tiny little seed creates this big giant, this giant bush. And also, here's kind of a, not the, exactly the flip side, but a, an interesting side of this. In, in King David's day, in Solomon's day, the symbol for, one of the symbols for the strength of the kingdom were the cedars of Lebanon, these tall, magnificent, strong trees. And Jesus' symbol is a shrub. I was fa- you're just not as fascinated as I am. I, I just think that's amazing. Jesus doesn't go to the, what the world might consider, what culture might consider, what's really big and strong. He uses kind of this simple, humble little thing of illustrating the, the, the kingdom of heaven. And so I think, there's a, I think there's some stuff in there too for, for what that means for us as followers of Jesus. And I'll illustrate it by telling about my friend Skip. Skip was a, a member of the church I served in Atlanta. When I got there, she probably would have been in her early 70s. 71, 72. She was our office volunteer on Tuesdays. She came in at 9. She worked all the way until 4 every single day, would not take a paycheck. Uh, her husband, Don, had fought in World War II. In fact, they were, he was a flyer um, in the Army Air Corps, it was called at the beginning of the war. Am I right about that? I think that's right. He and his wife and their, their, their newly born child were living uh, in Alaska when Pearl Harbor happened. Um, he was part of the group of fighters who fought the Japanese who were somewhere off of the Aleutian Islands, um, not, not too long after that, he had to put his wife and baby daughter on a ship in, uh, in Anchorage bound for San Francisco. Can you imagine? I mean, I can't imagine in the middle of war. I mean, ships were being sunk in the Atlantic. The Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor. What would keep any enemy from attacking a ship, whether it was 
whether it was military, I just can't imagine what it was. That's the kind of person she was. Don had gone into business, had become very successful. They, were, they, were, they weren't like fabulously wealthy, but they were, they were pretty dang comfortable. But you'd never know it. She just wanted to volunteer at the church, and she just wanted to help people. And she'd come and answer the phone. And, and there were some times when she'd say, she'd come into my office. She, usually she'd just buzz, my, buzz me on the phone and say, Glenn, you got to call on line three, back when we had line threes before cell, cell phones and things. So once or twice in the first couple of years, she'd come in and she'd say, so-and-so's on the phone and you might want to hold my hand while you talk to him. <laughs> Man, it was going to be a difficult, difficult phone call. She, was just, she always brought us chips. Every, every, every morning when you came walking in, everybody's mailbox had these little trays that were our mailbox. Everybody's mailbox had a bag of Doritos or a bag of Lay's potato chips or all this stuff. And then she volunteered at the homeless shelter. She volunteered at the food bank. And she volunteered like five days a week at all these things. Was very generous in her pledge to the church. Gave a huge uh, quarter of a million dollar gift to the church in their capital campaign. It was a large for that little church, it was a huge gift. And when it came time to name the fellowship hall in the middle of that campaign, 90%, probably 95% of the people had no idea how much money they had given. But the overwhelming response from the congregation was, we should name it after Skip and Don Dunlap because they're what it means to follow Christ. It just, it kind of was just like her bringing chips. It was her giving out food to the homeless on Tuesdays and, and working in the shelter on Wednesdays, and they just saw in her life this transform. She was truly that mustard seed kind of a, kind of a person. I, 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 she fell and broke her hip at the church, and two weeks later she was, she was gone. She was 82 or 3 at that point. I did her funeral. The day after her funeral, I went into the office, got in about 7.30 that day, opened my mailbox, there was a bag of Doritos in my mailbox. I looked at the others. Every single staff member had a bag of chips. To this day, I don't know who did that. Although I kind of believe it was Skip. You see, I tell that story because I, I really think that's what Jesus is getting at here. It's those tiny little acts that actually lead to so much, that inspire so much, that build so much, that bring so much uh, a truth into the world. You never know where that tiny little thing will be. I got an anonymous note tapped, taped to my door here at my little office here. I got a little cubby about the size of about this big. Um, and, you know, I, I've gotten a few anonymous notes in my life, and I've never gotten one that was nice. <laughs> this one was really sweet. And it's just like out of the blue, just came and just, I just want you to know, I appreciate you, your ministry, whatever. I was like, holy cow, what a, what, a, what a great thing that someone did. Just one tiny little thing like that for somebody in this room or somebody that you know needs a note or a kind word uh, is, is huge. So never, never, never let that um, uh, kind of action uh, be forgotten from me. Recognize that it is indeed a, a huge thing. All right. Uh, Matthew 13, 36 to 43 now. <clears throat> Nope, that's not the right text. Let me get the right text here. I'm sorry. Because it starts right in the middle. Okay, uh, 51. Sorry. Have you understood all this? They answered, yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe, 1351, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. When Jesus had finished his parables, he left that place. Then, so he's done all these parables, and we haven't taken time to go through every parable because it's, each one is a sermon in and of itself. Then notice, verse 54, he came to his hometown and began to teach the people in the synagogue so that they were astounded and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these deeds of power? 
Then, and they talk about, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the son of Mary? Where then did the man get all this? And then they took offense at him, verse 57. This is, this is Matthew's version of what Luke tells about how Jesus sat down to, to preach and the people tried to kill him. Um, a lot of what Jesus preached in his first sermon, again, was this radical inclusiveness and welcome. He made it very clear that God's blessing goes beyond Israel. It goes out to the whole world. And it got rejected most clearly in his own hometown. It's kind of fascinating, isn't it? Sometimes the starkest in and out places we, we determine are our own hometowns, our own families. Right now in this current political context, I've read story after story after story of families who cannot talk, who cannot be in the same room with each other, who can't, who, they've had to cancel Thanksgiving, they cancel Christmas, they're not being around each other because it's become so difficult. Sometimes those, those small places of community are the most difficult ones to receive a voice that might be different than your own or opinion or a thought or an idea that doesn't quite fit, fit who you are or what you think uh, the other ought to, ought to think about. All right, now let's, let's move on to uh, slide five, a summary of, of the parables. You become Christ's brother or sister by learning to be his disciple. <clears throat> the, all of these parables were intended to teach his followers, and that's you and me, on how to be his disciple. And, and in Jesus' understanding, you're not born into this family. You're brought into this family by your own decision to follow. One of the things that I did a year ago, and I, and I got, actually got a couple of nice notes about this. I was surprised because I was nervous. When I taught the block of wood class, these are ninth graders, right? How old is a ninth grader? 14, 15, something like that. I told, I was with the last one in the block of wood. They had a whole series of all the preachers, all their different lessons. I gave them a lesson on our theology of our church and kind of who we are and why we want them to make this commitment to become a member of the church. And I said, and I want it to be yours. Now, part of me, I told the kids, part of me wants to say, you better do this because, you know, you just should do this. It's a great thing. Just be sure and do it. I really wanted to sell them. I said, I'm not going to do that. I want this decision to be yours. I want you to decide that you're doing this. I want you to do it not because you think I should, not because one of our other pastors maybe thinks you should, not because your mom or your dad or your grandma or your grandpa or somebody else thinks you should. You are now, as a young adult, with a fully functioning brain, well, some of you maybe, no. no. <laughs> it's, it's, we want you to make this decision. We want you to make a decision. We baptized you as an infant and said that you're already loved by God. That's done. But now we want, and actually we had two people in my first block of wood class who chose not to go uh, forward with their, with their friends. Not because they were upset or angry or anything, but they just said, one, one of them told me, I'm just not ready. I just, I got so many questions and I, not, I just don't know that I'm ready. <clears throat> These parables are saying to us, that's how you get into, the, into the, becoming a follower of Jesus. You make a decision. It's not about where you were born. It's not about what your mom told you you had to do. It's because you decided on your own to make that choice. <clears throat> that's, a, that's a fairly large thing. Okay, slide number six. We're going to move on to chapter 14 now. The parables of the kingdom of heaven make clear that the kingdom of heaven is not up there. Oh, I'm sorry, this is, this is more conclusion. Not up there, but, but rather is a kingdom that creates time and constitutes space. Um, uh, yes, that's good. Let's keep going. Next slide. Jesus stands in stark contrast to Herod. He does not kill. He makes us alive by inviting us to join him in his, in his kingdom of peace. Look at what Herod does. Chapter 14, verse 1. 
At that time, Herod, uh, the ruler, heard reports about Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. And for this reason, these powers at work in him. For Herod had arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison uh, on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been telling him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Though Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because he regarded him a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company. This story's getting worse, isn't it? <clears throat> And she pleased Herod so much that he promised on oath to grant her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. So here we have this sordid party, these people who have way too much money, way too much power, way too much ego. There's all this stuff going on. And what, just whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Good. Kill John the Baptist. The political part of Herod knew he shouldn't do that. But now he's stuck. If he doesn't kill him, he's stuck. That's what people with power like Herod do. They just kill the other to get them out of the way. Jesus is, the, is antithetical to this. Everything about Jesus is the opposite of Herod. This story is in here, not only because it's a, it's a powerful narrative uh, marker, this story is in here because it really tells us the, the absolute difference, the stark contrast between Herod, who represents political power gone wild, and Jesus, who comes with a kingdom, as was described in the parables, as something that's like a, sh like a, um, a shrub. Uh, a mustard tree, a bush, and that's how he's going to change the world. He's going to cover it with mustard shrubs so there's no longer any wood or steel for making, for making swords, as, as it were. <clears throat> okay, 1422-33. Great story. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time, the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. What's it say? Do not be afraid. Somebody has said, and I can't figure out if this is true or not, that the Bible says 365 times, do not be afraid or fear not. Now, I can't, again, I've, I've Googled, I've, I've, I've gone through my concordances, I've tried to figure out how many times it does say that, and it's, it, I, I, I don't know, but the point is pretty strong. It's, a, it's in there a lot. Uh, you know, the angel says that. The angel says that on the announcement of Jesus' birth, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. To Mary, don't be afraid. To Joseph, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Okay, don't be afraid. Um, apparently seeing an angel is not a fun thing. It's a scary thing. Uh, don't be afraid. Constantly we hear that. Jesus is saying the same thing here. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come on. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. A, a, couple of, a couple of things here on, on, on this. Um, Jesus calls us to do dangerous things. Now, I don't mean necessarily going to parts of Columbus where you don't want to be walking around by yourself at night. But maybe. I don't mean necessarily that you need to get on a plane tomorrow and fly to Haiti, something I've done, and, and do some work there to help them to continue to recover from the, the earthquake that devastated that country 10 years ago. But maybe, I, 
I'm not telling you you should probably quit whatever your job is right now and go to seminary and spend all of your money and borrow some more money and get a Master of Divinity degree and go off and become a pastor somewhere and stand in front of a crowd and, and sweat more than you ever thought you would. But maybe there's a great book called If You're Gonna Walk on Water, do you know this book? You've gotta get out of the boat. It's written by John Ortberg, one of my favorite preachers. It's a beautiful title, and it's exactly that. So, so, so sort of, the, sort of the, um, the youth minister in me, if we, if we, were, we were a bunch of 15-year-olds, I might be asking you, what's something dangerous you could do for Jesus tomorrow? And if Jesus is too uh, touchy-feely religion, what's something dangerous you could do for God tomorrow? And if you're not sure about God, well, for the spirit or the universe or for your neighbor. Again, it doesn't have to involve knives or weapons or, you know, going to some foreign country. Haiti is scary. The moment we landed to the moment we took off, I was scared the whole time. Beautiful people, amazing people, but there's some scary stuff too. But is there, is there something? Is there something that you've been thinking? Maybe it's a person you should have called 10 years ago. Maybe it's something you should have, a, someone you should have a conversation with. Maybe it's, something really hard. What, what is that? What Jesus calls us to is some dangerous stuff. And by the way, the emphasis on this story is not on the miracle. It reports Jesus walking on the water and Peter walking for a little while as though that happens all the time. It's no big deal. Again, whenever you see him, I've said this a lot. Whenever you see a miracle in the Bible, the point is not about the miracle. It's always a miracle always points toward something, especially in antiquity. There were miracle workers all over the place, all kinds of stories about miracles, yada, yada, yada. Everybody was doing miracles. That's not the point. The point is, what is it saying to us about Jesus or what is it saying to us about us? This is saying Jesus is over and above all of nature. His, his, his kingdom is not controlled by nature. It's not controlled by politics. It's not controlled by ego or power. His kingdom is above all of that stuff. And that's what Matthew really, really wants us to see here. All right, go to the next, uh, the next slide, seven. We're going we're gonna to shift a little bit from that. We're going to Matthew 15. Go to Matthew 15, chapter, uh, verse 10. Sex cannot be a private matter for those who would live as disciples of Christ. In chapter 15, leave that up there for me for a while too, Stuart. In chapter 15, we have Jesus giving some pretty strict rules. Um, one, and, one and two. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders and they don't wash their hands before they eat and they get into an argument without silly stuff. Then go to chapter, verse 10. Then he called the crowd to him and said to them, listen and understand. In, in, in the Greek, the word listen is a, 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 it's a kuo, which means I... Uh, I hear, uh, it's, it's related, the root of the word is a coup, and, and it's in the imperative. It's like, listen, that's what he's saying. I mean, it's just, that's what he's saying. Pay attention, sit up. It's not what goes in the mouth that defiles a person, but it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles. Then the disciples approached and said, do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard you say that? <laughs> he said, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted, let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. Who cares what they say? Well, then explain it to us. Verse 17. <clears throat> Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and goes out into the sewer? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles. For out of the heart come evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, and slander. Now, in the churches I grew up in, our Sunday school leaders and youth leaders especially would use a verse like this. 
to make us feel bad about having sexual desire. I mean, it was just, you know, fornication and, and you know, of course, when you're in seventh grade, you're going, fornication, what, what is that? Um, uh, but they'd made it clear. They'd make it clear what it is and don't have these thoughts or you could burn forever. And isn't that a great way to, to inspire young people to f- grow up in the church and follow? No, it's not what it's about. What Jesus is saying is your ethical life is on display. Whether you like it or not, your ethics and how you live your life are on display. Julie and I were at a, at a lecture series at University of San Francisco a long time ago, probably 25 years ago. Harawas was the lecture, and I think I told you uh, earlier at the beginning of the class, he irritates liberals and he irritates uh, uh, conservatives. He went on a rant about abortion and how it ought to be outlawed and it's wrong and, and you know, did all this stuff, and then he went on a rant about the death penalty and how it ought to be uh, 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 abolished and, and gotten rid of and, and all this stuff, and he essentially in the first 30 minutes had everybody mad at him um, uh, on both sides of the political issue. Uh, but then he said something that was really fascinating. He held up his hand, and can you see my wedding ring? He said, this wedding ring is my public declaration of who I'm having sex with. I know, we, we, you didn't react very much. We all kind of went, oh. <laughs> you know, what does that mean? And, and he said, we ought to put that in the wedding vows. I know none of you preachers out there will do that, but you ought to put that in the wedding vows because that's what you're saying. When you put that ring on your finger, you made all kinds of promises, and one of them is, I'm only going to have sex with this person and they're only going to have sex with me. And that's a public declaration. And the more we can talk about that publicly and openly, according to Mr. Howarth, and frankly, according to Jesus, the easier it is to deal with the issues that arise around that. Uh, uh, is our sexual issues on the front page of the paper uh, today? Yeah, yeah, just a little bit maybe, you know. I mean, just, just go ahead. Just, yeah, if you haven't looked at the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, or whatever you read, those are the two I read, look at your paper. It's all over the place. Sexual ethics matter. And when we're public about it, it helps us deal with it in a public way. It brings it out. Now, we're not talking about intimate details. You understand what I'm saying? We're not talking about those kinds of things. That's between uh, spouses between people who are in a serious, committed relationship. What we're talking about is, it, is being able to say in public, here's who I am, and, and here's how I live my life, and here's who I've made promises to. And the more we can live that way, um, frankly, the better our society is. And so what, that, so what Jesus is saying is, in the church, this ought to be second nature for us. In the church, this ethical way of living and being and acting and, and behaving ought to just be who we are. Not because it's the super strict rules of you better not or you're going to fry, but because it's a natural outgrowth of a healthy, strong community of faith who's willing to make promises not only as husband and wife or, or as husband and husband or wife and wife or whatever, the, whatever it is for you. It's rather, it's rather the ability to be able to say we've made promises to each other that we'll be open about this and that and the other thing and we'll, be, we'll practice a life that reflects these, this way of, of living. It's not about the rules. It's about an ethic of life. I hope that makes, hope that makes some, some sense. If you disagree, that, that, that's okay too. Um, and we'll talk about it and I'll give you some question time in just a moment or two. All right, now go to uh, slide eight, which kind of makes the point I was making. Jesus demands, as we've seen from his Sermon on, on the Mount, lives of integrity. That's really what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. It's not about creating really impossible rules to follow. It's about saying, yes, we will, we will as a community of followers of Jesus, put these ideas like blessed are the peacemakers and loving your enemy and turning the other cheek when someone slaps you and, and carrying somebody's pack an extra mile. If you've got two coats and somebody needs a coat, you give away your coat. <laughs> I said that in a sermon once and uh, about 10 years ago in Kansas City, and this wonderful woman, member of the church, chair of the board, 
Um, she came up to me afterwards and she said, I'm really bothered by what you said about the coats thing. I said, you know, just so we're clear, I was quoting Jesus. <laughs> I always tell Julie when, when she says, how do you think the sermon's going to go? I said, I'm quoting Jesus a lot. Oh, you're, you're going to be in trouble. <clears throat> I, said, I said, I'm just quoting Jesus. She said, I went home and counted my coats. I have 13 coats. I said, are you going to give one away? I can't decide which one. <laughs> And she gave away about half of them. Now, I, now I, because it was a law and a rule, and Glenn said, you better or you're bad. No, but because she was challenged by, by what she heard. And she was challenged by the teaching of the one she's trying to follow. And then she turned it into an opportunity. And she came back a couple weeks later going, I feel so good. This feels so great. And a couple of, co you know, and she got, got the whole thing. It's about creating, it's about creating lives of integrity not about creating a, a system of impossible rules to, to follow. Uh, um, okay, Matthew 16, uh, verse 13. This whole section has been ongoing about how to follow Jesus and how some people fall away and how some, this whole section we've looked at tonight, how some folks challenge Jesus and don't, don't like what Jesus does. Now we kind of come to a culmination of this whole section and a culmination of what, what's really been happening um, with the disciples. Verse 13 came to the district of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, who do people say that son, we're, we're in chapter 16, verse 13. Who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say? Who do you say? Simon Peter, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, well, what the Greek word is Petra, so you, you're, like my little, you're like my little rock, my rocky. On, on this rocky, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound, etc., etc., etc. Then he sternly orders everyone to tell no one. But here's, here's the beauty of that story. Well, okay, so here's all the answers. What's everybody saying? Here's the survey results. Great. What do you say? And Peter gives that A-plus answer. Now, Peter's going to fail. You know that already in, a, in, a, in not too long. He's, he's going to fall flat on his face. But we're going to end the class here with Peter. You're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. It's called the Great Confession. <clears throat> Look at those words. Christ, Meshiach, has political implications. Son of God. Who was the Son of God who was the ruler of the Middle East, or the Mediterranean? Caesar. Caesar was often called a son of God or the son of light. Another phrase that we are, the idea of Jesus being light. There are these political implications in here, but Peter is standing up and it's, it's like he's saying, okay, I get it. I get it. You are the one. I'm following you and your way and no other way because I want your way to be my way and I want to do this. And Jesus just exclaims. Now, some people think this was written, by the way, back into the text because he says, I'll build my church. What verse was that? Yeah, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church in the gates of Hades. Um, just a little insider knowledge for you there. The word for church is ecclesia. Uh, it literally means gathering. Some folks think that this phrase was put back into this story a hundred years later in order to emphasize the church itself that Jesus really didn't know, wouldn't have used that word there because it would have been totally meaningless to the disciples. I'm going to build my gathering on you? Uh, what, what does that mean exactly? It's kind of strange. But what Matthew wants us to understand, what, uh, what Jesus wants us to see in, in, Peter's, in Peter's declaration 
is very simple and very clear and very direct. You and your way and the way you want the world to, to, to go is the way I want to go. It's a beautiful, beautiful promise of, or a beautiful, beautiful declaration <clears throat> of what the church is instructed to do, to follow Jesus and to let that, let that guide us. Last slide. Jesus wants to know. This is what we opened with. What do you think? Who do you say that he is? When I was growing up, we were taught strictly what we had to believe. Honestly, it's better as an open-ended question. I mean, you, you can disagree, it's okay. I mean, this is a church that allows disagreement for sure. In my mind, in my, in my way of, of thinking these days, the open-endedness of it is, is a beautiful thing because it means that we're constantly on the way with Jesus. I said in our first class, uh, one of the first names for the church when churches started to form was the way. We are people of the way. We are not people who have arrived at a firm, thought, solid theological point, who understand everything and the way it's all supposed to be, period, now and forever, amen. Thank you, Jesus, for instructing us in the one way that no one else understands except us, and you better be like a, which is too many churches. Instead, it's the, that was the way. Do you, do you hear the open-endedness of it? You know, um, could, could Jesus have predicted nuclear war? No, he had no idea about nuclear war. Could Jesus have predicted, his disciples even, have predicted some of the things we're dealing with today? The, the science is ahead of our ethics all the time. That's another Hauerwas quote, by the way. So it's, 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 de it's dependent on us to be on the way of Jesus to wonder then, that's why, the what would Jesus do? Bracelets were kind of corny and cheesy and perfect because we don't always know what the answer is. You can't flip to your Bible and say, here, chapter this, and that, 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 answers, the, that answers the abortion question. What, what's the text in the Bible about abortion? Do anybody know it? Good, because there isn't one. There's, it's been forced into a couple of places, but that's not what that text is about. It's not in the Bible. How do we figure out what to do, what's right about that? We have a community of faith that wrestles and struggles and tries to understand. Should it, should it be this or that? Should, there, should it be legal but rare? Should it be, uh, uh, I'm not gonna get into that issue tonight. Not in the last five minutes. All right, I, I promised some time for questions. I would love any questions that you have. Raise your hand, speak up nice and loud if you've got a question that's popped into your mind uh, as we ran through six or seven chapters of Matthew. Please, Randall. Why do you think Jesus rejected the Canaanite woman initially? And why did he change his mind? Oh, great question. Um, uh, the Canaanite woman, if you read your text for tonight, if you read the stories, is a story of a woman who comes to Jesus and she wants some help from him and he even kind of calls her a dog. Did you, know, did you notice that when you read? I mean, uh, Mr. Trump got in trouble for referring to somebody as a dog. Here's Jesus doing it. I mean, if, if Trump knew his Bible, he could have said, well, Jesus did it. Um, I think he rejects her because it shows, I, I, think, I think what it demonstrates is that Jesus was as provincial as anybody initially and that he was just as caught up in definitions that were as narrow as those around him. And when she challenges him, if you, know, if you stay with the story to the end, he kind of goes, oh, yeah. Your faith, that's good. And the teacher learns. It's one of my favorite stories. I've never preached a sermon on it, though. It's a, it's a, it's a difficult, difficult text, a hard one, and that was like a one-minute answer. So I, there's, a lot, there's a lot more to it. But those are the two things. I think Jesus, I honestly think that he's, he's caught up in his own um, uh, uh, culturalism where he knows he's right, and you Canaanite people, you're a bunch of foreign weirdos. And, oh, oh, well, but, ah. Oh. And she says, what does she say? Even the dogs deserve the scraps. And it's like a, a, a light goes off for Jesus. 
yeah, she understands my message. I need to start practicing what she's uh, pushing me to do. I hope that helps a little bit. Yeah. Please, Maggie. Yeah, uh, if, if, you, if you didn't hear her, she's talking about there's places where it says in the text he's the son of God and other places where it says he's the son of man. That son of God one would have been, like I said, a kind of a political term used to refer to Caesars and, and other powerful rulers. Um, it's also a phrase that comes out of the, um, uh, a variety of religious backgrounds for, for Jesus' time. Uh, the son of man one is traced uh, to Daniel and to a couple of the references in the Old Testament and it has a, do you know this word, an apocalyptic nature to it. Um, in fact, um, you, it comes up in Hauerwas's reading quite a bit, the apocalypticism, um, somebody said it again, apocalypticism, I think I said it right, um, of, of Jesus teaching that, hey, it's kind of like Jesus is in a hurry and he's, in a, in his, in his moving fast to say, look, the, the, world, the world could end any time. Let's be clear about what matters the most and let's be clear about what kind of community and what kind of ethic we're going to have, what kind of integrity we're going to have. That's related to the Son of Man because it's the same, the, the apocalyptic literature of the previous 150 years before Jesus came was when the Son of Man comes, he's going he's gonna to really line us up to get ready for the, the kingdom to appear and for it to be the way it is. So it's two uh, different phrases. They don't necessarily... Um, uh, uh, they're not exactly synonymous. They're, they're connected and related, but not synonymous. That's a fast answer, too, for a really good question. Did you have a chance to look up uh, that? Oh, about the, Lord's, about the Lord's Prayer. You know, somebody told me afterwards that, uh, was it you, Randall, that told me about that, um, about the Catholics do actually say those words? It's, I just right. where it came from. Where it comes from, probably, I, I would guess, it probably grew out of Roman Catholic the, uh, liturgy, would be my guess. But, uh, um, Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Was that? And in, in fact, there is no Lord's Prayer that's used in any church that I'm aware of that strictly matches up with either Luke's version or Matthew's version. Um, the one we say is different from those two. Which actually, with Matthew and Luke not agreeing, kind of shows you um, the church couldn't figure it out from the very beginning. <laughs> they, were, they, were having, they had a debts group and a trespasses group too, or whatever the fight was. Um, there was a question right there. Ed. I think, I think there's a couple, couple places to go with. Um, uh, one of the first ones is, in the Old Testament, the, the, um, uh, this is a general statement, so don't take this as a specific, but it's a generally, generally true in the Old Testament, the idea of hell essentially doesn't exist. Um, that, that there is this sort of um, understanding that death is a dark, shadowy, sad place. It very much reflects Hades. 
um, the King James Version, when it translated the word Hades, anywhere the word Hades appeared, it automatically made it hell. And, and hell uh, in the King James Version uh, was more like Dante's hell than the biblical hell. Dante added a ton of stuff. So that's part of the answer too is, is much of what we think about is hell uh, has only come since Dante or has been, frankly, in the last 150 years popularized by folks who wanted to create a system that created who's in and who's out. So a lot of those um, theologies uh, were added into the text only in the last 150 years or so. That was not a part, in my very strong opinion, not a part of what Jesus was saying. I think it's, it is hyperbolic language. Uh, Hades represents, um, uh, like I said, the place of, of the shadows of death. Now there, is, there was in Judaism uh, kind of uh, two strains, well more than two, two or three or four different strains of thoughts about what happens after death. Uh, Pharisees believed in an eternal life, and they believed in a narrow group was going to get there. The Sadducees, who were also religious leaders, um, they did not believe eternal life, that the only, the only life you got is the life you got right now. You know how I learned that when I was a kid growing up in those churches? Um, the Pharisees believed in heaven. They're fair, I see. The Sadducees did not believe in any heaven or hell or anything. Oh, they're sad, you see. Yeah, right. Yeah. But literally, that's how I learned. That's, that, it's still in my head, so it, it worked. Um, there's, another, there's another word that's mistranslated as hell. That's the word Gehenna. And Jesus says, you need to go to Gehenna and, and fry forever. Gehenna is a dump on the outside of Jerusalem. Gehenna is where they threw the trash over. Some, some folks have said, maybe that's where the crosses were. That's where the Romans put up their crosses. And when the bodies were done, the, Jesus' body being taken off the cross and buried, that was like the rarest of rare things. If, if I'm being crucified, Julie and the boys are going to be like sad, I, I hope, I assume. Um, but Julie's going to tell my boys, don't you go near your father's body because they'll know who you are and you might be killed next. Um, so probably what happened when people were crucified, they chopped the bottom of the cross off, throw, throw the body and whatever, and just let it burn there in the flames. When Jesus is talking about Gehenna or suffering in the eternal torment forever, he's talking about you ought to just be taken out with the trash and burned with the rest of it. That's the hyperbolicness of it, and it gets mistranslated. Another way I deal with this, this is probably more, more than you want to know, um, but Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats. Uh, remember, is, do you all know the parable of the sheep and the goats? The, the, the sheep are the ones who do what? Somebody's hungry, thirsty, naked, and in prison, you took care of them, right? And the goats are the ones who, somebody's thirsty, hungry, naked, or in prison, and you ignored them, right? Who goes to heaven? The sheep. Because they did nice things for people in tough straits. Who goes to hell to burn forever? The people who didn't do any help. It doesn't say a word about following Jesus. It doesn't say a word about believing this or doing this or getting baptized or any other stuff. If you do good things, you go to hell, heaven. If you do bad things, you go to hell. And, and so it's a hyperbolic way of Jesus saying, it's not meant to be taken literally. It's like, this is how we're supposed to live. If you take it literally, then everything I was taught in Fundamentals Church is absolutely wrong. Well, I kind of believe that anyway. But it, it's still really clear that those who do these kind things for people, they might be communist atheists. But they're going to heaven if they fed hungry people. And the religious guy who went to church every Sunday and believed that Jesus is personal Lord and Savior and accepted him forever, he's going to hell if he didn't care for the, the, the hungry person. I don't think that's what it's about at all, but if we're going to take that heaven and hell, are, are, that hell is to be a literal place, then you've got to interpret Matthew 25 that way. Uh, this is, I know it's late, uh, oh, which is 8.06. Real quick, Julie and I went to New Orleans. We've only been there once. We had great meals, awesome meals. Our Randall, you guys, Randall, Randall and Michelle, you're from New Orleans, right? At least Randall is. Um, uh, talk to them later. They got great, great uh, connections for restaurants. Um, and and I, I said, you guys, 
we got to walk down Bourbon Street. We just got to, I mean, come on, we're here. We got to walk. And we walk down Bourbon Street. Oh, yeah, how, don't raise your hand, but if you walk down Bourbon Street, you know what I'm talking about. And right in the middle of Bourbon Street, there are these guys with these giant signs and, you know, and you're going to burn forever and, and give your life to Jesus and all this. And I whipped up this guy and I said, hey, um, uh, I couldn't resist. I just can't resist. I said, tell me, tell me something. Do you read Matthew 25? I don't know what it means. I told him the parable of sheep and goats. I said, have you ever heard that? No. No. Well, it says if you feed the hungry, you're going to heaven. If you don't, you're going to hell. Does it say that? That's what it says. I'll have to go read that. That story, if that's to be taken literally, then, you, then, we, then we have, then we, you just can't. That's probably more than you wanted, but that would be part, that'd be part of my answer. Yeah. It's 8.06. Jesus loves you. Amen. Good night. Go home. Sleep well. See you later.